Well, before we get to our passage today in Matthew chapter 7, I want to flip back to Proverbs chapter 31. And I want to read the last couple verses of Proverbs 31. And so before we get to mothers, I want to just offer a, a light commentary to husbands. Uh, starting in Proverbs 31, verse 28, says, Her children rise up and call her blessed, and her husband also praises her. You know, as mothers, your children see you at your best, and they see you at your worst, and they rise up and call you blessed. It's not because there are times that things go wrong. There are times that things go right. It's because the character of a mother that her children rise up and call her blessed. And her husband also praises her. Her husband knows her worst thoughts and desires. He knows all the wretched things that she thinks and that she does. And yet he still praises her. And this is the role of a husband. To take your wife as a regular person who is as imperfect as you are and still praise her. Still to highlight those things in her life that are worthy of praise. To tell her that she's special. Verse 29, many women have done noble deeds, but you surpass them all. An example of the husband who praises her. Many women have done noble deeds, but you surpass them all. Find a way to praise your wife. Praise her in the good, encourage her in the bad, and lay it on thick. Don't underestimate how much praise your wife needs and desires. In verse 30, I think is especially insightful. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. Her greatest quality is not the fleeting beauty, it's the fear of the Lord. As your wife ages, she knows she has wrinkles that she didn't have 20 years ago. She knows she doesn't look the same way she did when you met, because that's all fleeting. Beauty is truly in the eye of the beholder. As you married and fell in love with the younger version of who she is now, the beauty has fleeted, but your love for her has continued to grow. She knows she has wrinkles. She knows she looks different. She does not need you to remind her. She needs you to tell her that beauty is fleeting and that who she is is a woman who fears the Lord, and that is to be praised. That is the quality in your wife that you ought to be praising. And then finally, verse 31, give her the reward of her labor and let her works praise her at the city gates. Now, this is not an annual requirement that the day of Mother's Day you remember and love your wife. This is just an annual reminder that you love and praise your wife. Because tomorrow is still the same requirement, and the next day, all the way until we get to next year's annual reminder that your wife is worthy of praise. Many women have done noble deeds, but you surpass them all. May it be said of you that when your wife receives a compliment, that she's able to say, I know that's what my husband says to me all the time. So may we remember that the woman 
who God has given us, fears the Lord is to be praised, and she is worthy of that praise. Because mothering is difficult. Being a mother is difficult. Whether you have one child or seven children, and even on days like this, not having any children is difficult. It's not just mothers that experience the hardship. It's those who desire to be mothers that experience hardship. It's those mothers that have lost children. It's those children who have lost mothers. Days like this are reminders, but they're often painful reminders. So be sensitive to people that don't have and desire children, that had and no longer have children, that had mothers and no longer had mothers, because mothering is definitely difficult. So men, I want to challenge you that I know you work, and I know you work a hard job. I don't know all of your jobs, but I assume, let's just assume you work hard, you do a hard job. I think it would probably go without saying, but I will offer it as a test just in case, that your wife's job, whether she stays home or whether she works and still cares for the well-being of your children, is harder than your job. Okay, I don't care what you do. If she has children with you and stays home and raises those kids, that is more difficult than whatever you do. And here's the challenge. If you don't believe me, in September is the women's retreat. <laughs> you tell her, it's, it's Friday afternoon, Saturday and Sunday morning. It's literally like a day and a half, maybe a little more. You tell her, go to the women's retreat. I already paid for it you're ready to go, and send her off Friday morning. Go to Fresno, go shopping before the retreat, go have lunch, and then you take care of the kids on Friday, and then you give them breakfast on Saturday morning, which is some things I forget. Kids are like, I'm really hungry. I'm like, oh yeah, it's 10 o'clock, we should eat. And then all day Saturday, you remember to feed them. We'll text each other and make sure we keep each other accountable. And then Sunday, you get them up and get them ready for church, and you show up on time. And then when she gets home Sunday afternoon, you don't complain at all. You just say, we had a great weekend. How was your weekend? And then you know that I'm telling you the truth, that her job is more difficult than yours. And it's a good reminder that mothering is hard. It's hard work when done right. The wife of a noble character is to be praised. So that's my challenge if you have not sent your wife to the women's retreat. It's not too late to sign up. And you might not thank me later, but you will at least have a greater appreciation for what she does with your kids. There was once a boy who was in a Sunday school class, and the Sunday school teacher was asking the students, does your mother or your father or anybody ever pray with you? And one boy raised his hand and he says, my mom prays for me every day. And the teacher says, great. He says, she said, prays the same thing for me every day. And the teacher says, great. She prays the exact same thing for me every single day. And the teacher says, do you want to share what she prays for you? And the boy says, yeah. Every single day she prays, God help you if you ever do that again. <laughs> I feel like sometimes I resemble that remark. 
Well, these teachings that we have from Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 are some general teachings that are often instilled in us by our mothers. And this is not just an only mothers can teach us type thing. This is general knowledge that Jesus is giving. It's spiritual wisdom that is something that is passed down in a spiritual sense. But we're going to take it and we're going to kind of look at it as Mother's Day because generally if you're already with me in Matthew chapter 7, this is the very typical Mother's Day passage. You know, the heading on mine is do not judge. So most of the time, you know, churches around the nation are preaching about judgment on Mother's Day. I'm sure that's a totally normal topic that everybody's preaching on. So I want to kind of look at it from a mother's perspective. Um, but like I said, keep in mind that these are not simply mother's things alone. So let's look at Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye? And look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. So don't judge or you'll be judged, and you'll be judged by the same measure that you use. And I think for a lot of us, technology is advancing faster than we can keep up with sometimes, and often at a rate that it's impossible for us to keep up with. I don't do TikTok. And I felt like for a lot of years, I was young enough to be on the cutting edge of things. And now I realize that even those things are starting to pass me by. And I can't imagine in 20 years what the kids will be doing and what technology will look like compared to today. So I was trying to think, what might technology look like in relation to judgment? And I can imagine contextually that if we were to judge someone, there might be a, a screen or a hologram or something that pops up and shows you when you've been judgmental. So if you tell someone, hey, you don't be rude to me, it like pops up the last five times that you were rude. And it says, you know, don't be rude to me, but shows, well, here's the most rude time that you've been in the last week. And you've been rude a total of 17 times since yesterday. You know, you tell somebody, as a Christian, you shouldn't be watching that kind of show. And immediately, like, an alert starts flashing that says, you know, you're seven episodes deep into that very show. And that's what Jesus is saying here is, you have to watch out because the same level of judgment that you judge others is how you will be judged. And the intention here is, to show mercy and forgiveness instead of being critical or even hypocritical. Because judgment is not necessarily a bad thing. Jesus is saying, be careful how you judge because the same measure is going to be used to judge you. And proper judging, the, the right way to judge is to be measured 
and to be discerning. So a proper call to judging is to be measured and discerning and not just critical of someone else. In the Bible, Jesus tells us that we are to recognize false prophets. We recognize false prophets by, first of all, knowing what the Bible says, and then comparing or judging or measuring their life, words, actions, against what the Bible says. It's a proper and measured call to understanding whether what someone is saying is true or false. Jesus also teaches that there's church discipline for unrepentant believers, that when presented with a sin that is in their lives, that the repentant believer should repent of that sin, and the unrepentant believer, the person that doesn't care that they're sinning, there's consequences. There has to be judgment for that person. Peter, Paul, and the author of Hebrews all talk about the need for civil courts to judge, to have authority. And so the ability to judge is not just a blanket, don't judge me, but it's a non-hypocritical and not critical evaluation of someone. C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Judging someone is not just looking for what they've done wrong and pointing it out, but it's mercy and forgiveness knowing that you also desire to have someone give you mercy and forgiveness when you've been wrong as well. Verse 3 says, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. You see, pride and a critical nature kind of go hand in hand. Because when someone is proud, they tend to look at others in a critical way because they don't see their own flaws, but the flaws of others stick out like a sore thumb. And that's what Jesus is saying. The proud person has a log sticking out of their eye and can't see it. And yet they can see the splinter, the speck of wood in someone else's eye. Pride leads us then to justify our own actions. You know, I've got that big log, but it's not my fault. I couldn't help that I had a big log. It, it was just put there by someone else, and I can't be blamed for that. But that splinter, so we justify our own actions. But then being critical of someone else highlights and maximizes their little flaws. That's what makes us critical. I can't be wrong, and yet I'm able to see the wrong in somebody else. So if we are prideful, we don't see our own problems. And if we're critical, we overemphasize the problems in someone else. So to have Christ-like humility, verse 5, first take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly. To have a Christ-like humility means to have honest self-evaluation. That you can stop and say, am I the kind of person that has a log in my eye. 
And often someone else can tell you that better than you can. Often someone else can look and say, yes, you are prideful. Yes, you are critical. Yes, you have a giant log sticking out of your eye. And those are valuable people in our lives if we want them to be valuable. Generally, that's either like a magnet, either repulsive to us, someone that is lovingly honest, or it's endearing where we recognize that they love us enough to be honest. It's hard to find a middle ground with someone who is honest and loving at the same time. So when you find that person, often a wife, often a spouse, often a mother, who will be honest and loving at the same time, that's a valuable thing in the process of being self-evaluatory. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. Take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly. You might remember when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and he called them blind guides. He says, you know, you're supposed to be leading the people, but you yourselves are blind. And if two blind people walk together, they both fall in a pit. And that's the person with the log in their eye. The log in the eye, they're trying to lead somebody, but they're blind and can't see where they're going on their own. So humility is looking at the log in our own eye, recognizing its size, and ignoring the splinter in someone else's life. But it requires humility. It requires us to say, I'm going to deal with my own problems and let God deal with that person's problems. And then verse 6, Christ-like mothers can teach us discernment. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Discernment is being able to judge properly and to judge well. So judging properly and judging well. When I was in elementary school, I had a friend named Michael, and it came about that my mom did not care for Michael. And I did not know why my mom did not care for him. He was a friend that I went to school with. And so I asked my mom, why don't you let me hang out with Michael? Why don't you like Michael? Something to that. And she said, every story you've ever told me about Michael are things like, he brought matches to school. And he brought a lighter to school. And so we lit some paper on fire at recess. And Michael has fireworks at home and he likes to light them off in the middle of the night. And Michael set field to a fire on accident, set fire to a field on accident and burned down the field across from his street. All of the things that you've told me about Michael say that he's a pyromaniac. <laughs> and it's true, he was. He's totally fine now. I, I haven't seen him since like fourth grade, but I looked him up on Facebook and he still loves fire, I'm sure, but not, not in a dangerous way. But my mom was trying to offer discernment that she saw something in his character and in his actions that should be evaluated and considered. She was judging him properly and judging him well and then offering that to me as discernment, as life advice. And that's what Jesus is teaching here in verse 6. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they'll trample them under their feet. As we as Christians consider 
the holy and the valuable pearls, Jesus is making a connection to what we find holy and what we find valuable, namely the gospel. As we take the good news to others, we have to discern. Are they people who will accept? Or are they someone who rejects? And having been offered the gospel, do they reject and continue to reject? And at some point, discernment has to be employed and say, am I giving what is holy and valuable to dogs and to pigs? Dogs and pigs in the Jewish culture are unclean animals, and it's no mistake that Jesus is separating his hearers, the Jewish people, from unclean animals, that he's separating out, setting apart, sanctifying these two things. Warren Wearsby says, it is a wise Christian who first assesses the condition of a person's heart before sharing the precious pearls. And Jesus is giving direction. He's giving an assessment. If someone is foolishly rejecting over and over and over the pearls that you're offering them, it's probably time to walk away. If they are even doing worse than that, it's definitely time to walk away. Jesus teaches in John 10 that if you go into a city, he tells his disciples as they're going out, if you go into a city and they reject you and they won't listen, then shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else. It was a picture you might remember with Pilate when the Jews came to Pilate and they wanted to crucify Jesus. Pilate got a basin of water and he washed his hands to show them, you know, as a picture, my hands are clean. You take Jesus and you do what you want, but his blood is not on my hands. I've washed my hands of this and I don't take part in this. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 10. To shake the dust off of your feet and just let it be. In Acts 13, that's what Paul and Barnabas do. They get beat up by the Jews. They literally shake the dust off their feet to show these people we're clean of this. In Acts 14, the Jews try to kill Paul and they leave him for dead. The next day, Paul gets up and he's gone. He's going somewhere else. There comes a point where the pearls and what is holy are constantly just trampled. And what Jesus is saying is we have to use discernment. We have to know when that sad and tragic time comes that we just say, I'm going to leave this between you and the Lord and I'm going to be done with this. The Bible says that not all who look will see, not all who hear will listen and understand. Their eyes are blind, their ears are stopped, their hearts have grown callous. And it wouldn't make any sense. It'd be foolish of us to take a stack of $100 bills, $10,000, and line the dog's kennels with it. Right? The dogs don't care. You take a bag full of diamonds and you lay them before a pig and you're like, I love you so much. Look at all these pearls. And the pig's like stepping on them. And we take what is valuable, what has been entrusted to us. We just keep putting it there. Jesus is saying, you're giving what's holy to dogs and eventually they're going to turn and tear you to pieces. So we're to share the good news. We're to offer that hope to all people. And having offered as they continue to reject, Jesus is saying, 
Just let it be. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants there to be a time where we just walk away, but at some point we let them deal with the Lord directly. Verse 7, Jesus kind of switches a little bit here, and he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. This is a picture of persistence. To continue in prayer, to ask, to seek, and to knock. To continue going that the door might be opened. And this week I was thinking about, all right, what's a good picture of persistence? And then I thought of Sarah, which doesn't make any sense until I say Sarah Winchester. And then it's like the Winchester Mystery House, right? You remember the Winchester Mystery House? For 38 years, she continued having people build around the clock for 38 years. That's persistence. I haven't done anything for 38 years. Maybe I've I've breathed for 38 years. I've been persistent in breathing. But man, for 38 years to have people employed, building doors that go nowhere and stairs that go nowhere, and for 38 years, she was persistent. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. To ask, and it'll be given to you. To seek, and you'll find. To knock, and the door will be opened. To continue to be persistent. In uh, Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable. He's trying to illustrate this idea of being persistent. And he says, there was once a judge who was not not a godly guy. He was just a regular worldly judge. And a woman came to him and said, I want justice. And the judge just like sent her on her way because he didn't care. But she kept coming back and she kept coming back over and over and over. She came back and forth to this judge demanding justice. Eventually, Jesus says, The judge just gave in because she was pestering him. Eventually, the judge just was like, okay, fine. You've been so persistent that I'm just going to give you justice and do what you want. And here's the, the teaching that Jesus has for that. He says this, Will God not grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he swiftly will grant them justice. Jesus is using that annoying, persistent widow who bugged the judge so long that he finally gave in as a way that we ought to be with God, that we ought to continue to ask, continue to seek, and continue to knock, to be persistent. You know, I think a lot of times, you know, we're we're fast food people, like, just like we want something now, just as a culture and as this time in human society. And I think that's the way we approach prayer too often than not. You know, we're like, dear God, get me out of traffic. Oh, it's still here. You know, like if we open our eyes after praying and it doesn't happen right away, we must have done something wrong. Or God didn't hear us because we gave it one shot and then we give up. There's value, there's hope, in having persistence, to continue to ask, to continue to seek, to continue to knock. But the challenge is that when we don't see quick results, it's really easy just to give up. And you've known that. I have a friend who prays for his unsaved children every day. It's regular. It's persistence. He hasn't lost hope. He just knows that 
This is what I need to do. This is what God calls me to do. Because if you look at the end of that verse, verse 8, for everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. It doesn't say the one who asks or seeks or knocks will open the door. It's the door will be opened. That God is the one who opens that door. That we as followers of Jesus ask and we seek and we knock, expecting that as we are persistent in that, that we seek first the kingdom of heaven, that we ask according to God's will, that God's will be done, that when we're persistent in that, that the door will be opened. That we don't push it open, but God is the one who chooses when and how to open that door. So Christ-like mothers can teach us to be persistent. And Christ-like mothers teach us a selfless love as well. Look at verse 9. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If you then, who are evil, I feel like Jesus is not holding back right now. He's like, yeah, okay, your kids are hungry, you give them bread, you give them fish. If you're evil, like I imagine all the people were like, calm down, like, you don't got to go there, you know? But Jesus is saying like, in our own selfish wickedness, we're able to give good gifts, right? You give your kids food, you care about other people, you do good things for other people. And Jesus is saying that this is a contrast, in your evil, sinful wickedness, you can do good things. Even though you're wicked, you have the ability to do some good things. Not good for salvation, but just good for others. And then he says, but God, and there's no longer a contrast. Because God is only good, and he only does good things. So we are evil and can do good things, but God is just good. So if we who are evil can do some good things, how much more can God, who is only good, give us good things? That's the picture here that Jesus is giving. There's a, not only a contrast, but a picture of the natural love that we have as humans, that we, we have so much capability to be good and to be loving to others, with the unnatural ability for God to endlessly be loving, to selflessly be loving, to care about us in ways that we quickly are unable to do. And when we see love like that, we tend to take notice because we expect parents to give their kids bread if they're hungry, to give them fish if they're hungry. That's what we expect. We don't expect for you know, your kid to ask for bread and you take a rock that looks like bread and be like, here, take a bite of this. You know, your fish, your kid asks for fish and you're like, well, here's a snake. It also has scales. Go ahead and take a bite of that. You know, these are normal and natural things. But Jesus is saying God's love goes beyond that. It's an unnatural, impossible human love that there's not a comparison we are evil and can do some good. God is perfect. 
and is good. It's not just part of who he is, it's his very nature. And I think sometimes, you know, just looking at that verse 9 and 10 that kids ask for bread and, you know, you give them bread. I think sometimes with God, like children, we often ask God for stones and we ask God for snakes. And God, even in his goodness, chooses not to give us what we ask for. That's what Matthew 5, when we were, or chapter 6, our prayer should be like this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's an easy prayer because I don't know what I want. I don't know what I need. I think sometimes I ask for snakes. Like, God, this is really what I want. And he's like, please don't. You know, like, okay, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added to you. Like, that I can do. That I can say, I want to honor God with my prayer. I don't know what to ask, but I know I need bread. I know I need fish. So asking the Lord to deliver what only he can deliver and trusting in his goodness. Right? Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. Right? It's true. It's true that when we don't know what to ask, God sometimes says no because we're asking the wrong things. And then verse 12, probably my favorite verse in this chapter. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. And we live in a polarizing society, right? It's often us versus them, whoever they are. We don't necessarily even quantify, but they are doing things. You know, when we go to a restaurant, we want perfect service. When my glass is like three quarters of the way down, I want to reach for it and there's a new one already put right into my hand. You know, when we are on social media, I don't want anybody to ever have a contrary opinion to mine. And if they do, I'm going to have to tell them why they're wrong. You know, we are often at odds with the world around us. And Jesus brings it all into perspective and he says, therefore, having a Christian understanding, having a biblical understanding, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. It's a golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, right? Everybody knows that. And almost all other religions have some form of the golden rule. But interestingly, a lot of them have it in its negative form. Don't do something to someone that you don't want them to do to you. And those are very different things. I can live neutrally if I don't do something bad to someone else. Right? I don't have to do anything if I say it in the negative. Don't do something to someone if you don't want them to do it to you. Don't punch someone if you don't want to get punched. Easy. But Jesus is saying, do for others what you want them to do for you. That takes this golden rule to a different level that I have to actually do something different. I think if we were to take all of our interactions, not just on social media and with restaurant staff, but with our children, with our spouse, with 
coworkers and take every interaction and write them all down and say, have I treated this person the way that I want to be treated? Have I done to them what I want them to do to me? I don't think we'd score 100% ever. Have I thought the way of someone that I want them to think about me? Have I felt in my heart about someone the way that I want them to feel about me? Have I whispered things about someone that I want them to whisper about me? You know, this is kind of starting to be the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is tying it all together and saying, for this is the law and the prophets. You know, we had all of these things that, you know, the law says, but I tell you, again, you've heard it said. And Jesus continues to give teachings all from, verse, from chapter 5 through where we are now. And this is the law and the prophets. To do unto others as you'd have them do unto you is the law and the prophets going back to the Old Testament and saying, this is what you've been taught to do to other people what you want them to do to you. And that's what Matthew 22 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do to your neighbor what you want them to do to you. Love your neighbor in the way that you would love yourself. It's a picture of Jesus' teachings on earth that we as Christians don't live by the world standards. We don't live by the don't do something to someone that you don't want them to do to you because the standard is different. The standard is do to others as you would have them do to you. We can't just live with the negative, don't do and you'll be fine. We have to do as Jesus commands. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. When I think of Mother's Day, I think of these types of things. And I know not everybody's mother was a good mother. I know not everybody's mother was a Christian mother that loved them, that did the right thing. But Jesus is motherly here. He's motherly in a compassionate way. He's motherly in his teaching. He loves well. When Jesus says, do for others what you want them to do for you, he walks it out and dies on the cross. Being sacrificial if not sacrificial, I don't know how to describe mothers better. They love well. They teach well. They're not perfect, but they do their best. And it's a picture of how we ought to be. If your mother was a good mother that walked out what it meant to be a Christian, then take that example and follow that example. If your mother was not a good mother, take that example as what not to do. As Jesus is teaching here, we ought to judge rightly. We ought to discern well. You know, those types of attitudes are straight out of Scripture, but they're all summed up by doing to others as you'd have them do unto you. 
We judge right because we want to be judged rightly. We discern because we need to be discerning and want others to be discerning. We love well, we give food, we care about others. And this is the law and the prophets. If you're going to sum up what it means to be a Christian, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's also what it means to be a mother. It's what it means to have a mother. So, on Mother's Day, I wish you happy Mother's Day. And if your mother is no longer with us, as mine is, I pray that you have good memories of your mother and you remember those good times. If you're not yet a mother, but you desire to be a mother, I want to pray for you. If you want to fill out your communication card, write down what you want prayer for. Our staff, we pray together every Monday morning. The elders will pray for you. We've got a box right in the back. You can drop it off right in the middle. But we want to pray for you. So if there's a way, especially on days like this where it can be difficult, just let us know how we can pray for you and we will continue to pray for you. At the end of the service, we're going to have prayer partners up here and we're going to have prayer partners over here. I'll be down in the middle. Again, we're happy to pray for you for whatever you need. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for the study of your word. Thank you, Lord, that on Mother's Day we can look at what it means to be a godly and biblical mother. Lord, I pray that the mothers who have children now are living this. Lord, if they are not living this, I pray that you would give them conviction that they can turn their hearts to you. Lord, we thank you for good mothers who show us what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live a life that follows Christ. I'm reminded of John Wesley who says his mother taught him more about what it means to be a Christian than all the theologians in England. Lord, may that be true of all of us, that our mothers teach us what it means on the daily life, walk with you, how we ought to follow you, how we ought to live with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.